Welcome to Becoming Referrable, the podcast that shows you how to become the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Steve Wershing. On this episode, we talk with Paul Kingsman, Olympic medalist, turned advisor, turned coach, and author of The Distraction-Proof Advisor. As advisors and business owners, there are so many things we have to pay attention to day by day, and there are so many things that can take us off course and keep us from building the kind of business we want to have. Paul talks with us about how to focus on the right kinds of goals to keep us moving to where we want to go. We talk about how to focus on relationships and not get distracted by things that can be automated or delegated. We talk about what kinds of distractions can take you off course, like accepting clients outside your target market. We talk about the importance of systems and structure for keeping you on course. And Paul has an interesting way of talking about minimum fee rather than minimum account size to help people refer to you the right kinds of clients. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that I'm not a fan of asking for referrals, but Paul gives us a conversation you can have with clients to help stimulate that referral activity. If you've ever caught yourself investing time in something that did not keep you on course to building the kind of business you want to have, you'll find value in this conversation. So let's get to it. Here now is our conversation with Paul Kingsman. So Paul Kingsman, welcome to the Becoming Referrable podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephen and Julie. Yeah, great great to have you. Thank you. So for those folks who, who don't know uh, you yet, Paul, uh, you're your work draws on your experience as an athlete uh, that culminated in an Olympic medal. Can you give us a little of that background? Yeah, sure. So I started swimming when I was eight years old and uh, couldn't really swim too well. I always loved the water. But um, when I was nine, uh, I saw the Montreal, the 1976 Montreal Olympics, uh, which I know dates me a lot. Um, <laughs> you figure out that I'm just turned 50. Um, but when I was nine, I saw those Olympics. And uh, for me, that was the thing that just got me so passionate um, to, to keep swimming and to be a part of that, that experience. Um, not that I'm saying you need, you know, that longer term objective at nine. If you haven't got it by nine, it's too late. But for me personally, when I saw that visual of the Olympic Games, that was it. And so had a family, a very supportive family who, um, you know, kept me involved with swimming, had a phenomenal swimming coach, and uh, we spent 15 years together. And so that culminated right through into going to the 1984 Olympics in LA and then the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, Korea, uh, where I won a bronze medal in the men's tournament meters backstroke for New Zealand. That's Oh, that's so awesome. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, I think the, the obvious question then <laughs> is uh, how, how you went from there to financial advisor to what you're doing today. So maybe you could, uh, you know, help us understand that path. Sure. So uh, when I got, I got married, once I retired from swimming in 1990, we moved back to New Zealand. Uh, my wife and I, my wife was from Northern California, who I met when I was at Cal on a swimming scholarship at Cal Berkeley. And her mum in 1997 um, had a career shift and started at Morgan Stanley. And so my wife was an only child. So each phone conversation would often hear about, you know, about things in this industry. And my mother-in-law was a little bit ahead of her time because she really focused on financial planning. Uh, and this was back, I remember, the late 90s, and planning wasn't at the forefront then. 
Um, I think a lot of places were playing lips, paying lip service to it. Um, but so, so we came back in 2001 with the idea of me going into partnership with her at Morgan Stanley. So I was actually in the second to last training class um, in World Trade Center in June, July of 01. And I quickly saw that amongst 380 advisors, while we learned a lot about product, uh, this is a large cap value manager, this is a small cap growth fund, this is a UIT, there was very little as far as here's how you stay focused for the long haul. Here's, here's how you handle the rejections. Here's how you handle the silences when those prospects tell you, of course, I'll call you back in a week <laughs> and never do. <laughs> and, and so that really got me motivated to, I, I've always loved speaking, but it really showed me, hey, this is an industry where tenacity, where um, just perseverance, those uh, approaches are required and where over the long haul you need to stay focused um, th that really appealed. So I, I loved motivating people and now specifically financial advisors and financial professionals. Um, so I stayed in the industry for some time. I've been in and out of the industry as an advisor. Uh, so I know what advisors go through. Um, I know what it feels like to sit across from the table of, of a prospect, of a, of a client. Um, so now I, I love encouraging those, those advisors out there. And, um, so you, you made the bridge then from being a financial advisor to coaching other advisors, mm. and, um, and, and you uh, wrote a book that, that came out a year or so ago called The Distraction Proof Advisor, yes. and much of that advice revolves around maintaining focus. Mm. So um, what, what caused you to want to branch off into helping other advisors with being distraction proof? Uh, so a couple of things on that, Stephen. Firstly... When, when I saw the, the advisors who I was in that same class with, I, it was very similar to the athletes I saw, the younger swimmers I saw that I was swimming with, phenomenally talented. Um, as a swimmer myself, I wasn't a hugely gifted athlete. I'm, I'm only six foot. I'm not six foot six. I don't have size 16 feet. Um, I, I, had to, I had to listen and, and I had to persevere and, and do the work. And, and really trained diligently. And I saw people with way more talent and ability than I ever had, but they struggled to stay focused. They struggled to be encouraged by making seemingly small steps. Um, and so I enjoy uh, mentoring people, enthusing people to keep going to keep focused on those steps, each incremental step, no matter how small it might seem, the reality is if it's the next step to take, it's the most important step to take. And so I was also blessed with great teams around me. Um, and this is one of the things that got me into coaching. Um, oftentimes to start out with, people would ask me if I coached advisors and I would just say, no, it's, it's simple. Figure out where you're at, figure out where you want to get to and, and, and put in that process. Um, but I, I really underestimated and, and didn't think through just how fortunate I was to have so many supportive people around me, um, be it back at home, back in New Zealand with my parents and with my coach, or when I came to the UC Berkeley team with our swim team. So the environment around a person, uh, I believe, is one of the key ingredients to, to really maximizing that potential that they have. So that's why I love encouraging them. So can you talk Sorry. a little... 
Oh, sorry, sorry, but I was just, so and there was a whole bunch of things in there I'd love to ask you about, but maybe just starting where you left off. When you talk about environment, you mean that in the broader context of anyone reaching their goals, I assume. Um, so, I mean, what about the environment have you noticed or and what can take people off course? Yeah, so so the environment is, is hugely important. It's, it's one of the biggest pieces uh, of this puzzle. Um, and, and so... Back in the olden days, where literally you had to have a soapbox to get your opinion across, only one person at a time had had any chance of of having their their opinions expressed and heard. Now it's completely flipped. Now anybody can get a have their own soapbox and reach thousands and thousands of people, <laughs> as as evidenced by this podcast. Yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> listening is uh, they're making the right decision so remember that. <laughs> um, but but what's happened now is that there is a myriad of of great ideas and this is where we struggle because as a, as an athlete you couldn't do everything i mean as an olympic medalist there were a number of different activities maybe 15 or 20 different combinations of activities you could do as, as an athlete. But when you had that timeline in place, i.e. for me, September the 22nd, 1988, for me, that, that narrows it down and distills it down to maybe four or five key aspects that I'm going to look to master. Not necessarily perfect, but I'm going to look to master them. And, and I, I see the same challenges with advisors. Now, as an athlete, if I said these four things and these four things alone are going to get me that Olympic medal, by default, a fifth thing, no matter how effective it might look, by default, it's now a distraction. And and out, the advisors out there have so much information uh, coming at them that they're really finding it hard. People these days, not just advisors, they struggle with with saying, okay, while those might be good ideas, I need to let them go. I need to have these four or five key tenets within my business or within my life and really hone these four or five, four or five objectives and tasks. Can, can, you give, can you give us a couple examples of that? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to uh, figure out how – I mean, I've got a, a few ideas how that could apply to the advisor situation. But, but tell us more specifically how that applies to the, to the financial advisor. Sure. So, so relative to um, building a business, for instance, if if you're saying, um, and this is one of the aspects that I love about the the referability, um, when I I see fifteen or twenty different ideas that that people think will will um, garner uh, referrals, but as you know from from the book you've written, it's sticking with a process and adhering to these particular steps. So, so for instance, as an advisor building a business, um, understanding firstly, I have to have my investment process down. Now, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna have offer investments, I've got a choice to make. I can either get caught up in all the investment monitoring, or I can set model portfolios, let professionals do this who do this 24/7, and focus more on the relationships that I need to build. Um, and for instance, this is an area that with the robo space will never take away um, relative to portfolio construction. They'll do that in a heartbeat. But an advisor who can let that go and who can say, hey, it doesn't matter if I try. I don't want to try and bring alpha 
to a portfolio return. I want to focus on the relationship. I want to get to know the kids. I want to get to know the parents. Um, these are the important things that I need to focus on and really focus on doing that and not get sucked into the traps of watching the market, of watching what's happening out there, the Dow, the S&P every day. And, and then be comfortable when somebody says, what do you think the market's going to do? Be comfortable saying, I have no idea. The markets are going to do one of two things. They're going to go up or down. That's what we know. And instead, keep coming back to focus on the relationship with that, that person. Um, so another aspect is putting in processes um, for advisors who want to grow their businesses. The, the number of advisors I speak with to start with who I'll ask, hey, do you have the processes in place for the most important facets of your business? It's stuff that can seem a little tedious, but it just gets pushed to the, to the next to-do list. Um, so it's focusing on those things that really count. Um, it's learning, like you've said, learning how to ask for referrals in an appropriate way and repeating that and having faith that that will work. So I assume that the you know end goal, so if we look at your personal story, it was you know it was going to the Olympics, that you had that clear goal which dictated what you needed to do. Um, do you find that um, advisors have clear enough goals that should dictate? I assume somebody who says, for example, I want to grow, I want to, you know, triple the size of my business in two years. That's going to dictate one path versus somebody who says, you know, I want to grow, but I want to work with particular types of clients or perhaps I want more time with my family. Mm. Yeah, great, great point, especially about the what is that person valuing? Um, a lot of times people will be vague. I mean, it's, for instance, uh, let's take um, an example we can, we can at least relate to. Uh, I want to lose 20 pounds. Well, if somebody comes and says that, the first question would be, well, by when? And if you say, well, I want to lose 20 pounds by next Friday because my sister-in-law is getting, or my sister's getting married, at that stage, it's like, yeah, good luck. And that's going to be unhealthy. Um, and so the timeline is, is critical. And so when somebody's saying, hey, this is what I want to do, my first question is why? Why, why are you seeing that is so pivotal is so critical to where you see your life going and I'm not looking at that as a right or wrong answer I'm just interested to know the conviction that's behind these aspirations uh, because oftentimes and you've probably bumped into it too where an advisor will say well I want to increase by 10 percent well why <laughs> Well, because Joe down the office did nine percent last year, um, it just that just doesn't doesn't cut it. Um, but it, but you've got to be specific as well, like you mentioned. There's specificity there, and I like having a to do by date. Um, I, I personally relate to that. Um, now, advisors immediately push back. Some of them will push back and say, "Well, there are so many unknowns that can happen." But to me, that's just a that's a lame excuse. Every, those things are going to happen anyway. You've got to have a, a default plan, a default structure in place so that when you do get taken off track, there's an immediate correlation back to where it is you said you wanted to end up. And this is well, what people – I'm sorry, go and see. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say that the, the whole ob, the, the the way you talk about the why is is a lot like reminds me a lot of Julie's work with with the absolute engagement is is, is getting in touch with that 
you know, with that, the, the reason what's, what's behind it, how, how do advisors keep that present to themselves the, to keep them on track? So I think it comes a, a big step is being able to vividly imagine the, the end result. What is this going to look like? Uh, how is this going to feel? Um, how is this going to feel when I have the ability to decide how I'll spend my Thursdays or Fridays? Um, for, for a long time in this industry, when I first started, um, you'd often hear these um, advisors talking about setting goals and objectives so that way I can have Friday off and I don't have to come into the office. And that used to rub me the wrong way because I, I used to think, man, I, I love doing what I'm doing as an advisor. It's not necessarily that I want a three-day weekend every weekend, but what I would like is the choice to say, hey, this Friday, I don't, I don't need to be there. Um, I love what I do there, but I don't need to be there. Or this Friday, I'm going to work from home instead, and we're just going to work from 9 till 12. Um, so coming back to the values then, how vividly can you imagine them? And then based upon how vividly you can imagine them, and how disappointed will you be if you don't get that when you know you can? And, and this is when, when advisors recognize, hey, I could totally have that. That's a big piece. But then how frustrated will you be if you know you could have that but won't get disciplined enough to go after it and really get it? And at that bit, you've got it. Then, you, then it comes down to deciding how badly do you want it. And, and we always, we had a saying at Cal on the swim team, the saying was this, when the gun goes, the garbage stops. And what we meant by that was you can talk about how great you'll be. You can talk about how much you're going to achieve. You can talk as long as you want. But when that gun goes and that race starts, the truth is about to come out. Yeah. Well, so you, you talked about, you know, getting a real a clear image of, of what you want in the end. And in, mm. in the Distraction Proof Advisor, you talk about having – um, dream boards you have as a way of mm. visualizing the outcome. So I noticed that one of the illustrations you have in, in the book with your dream board has a, a picture of the Marin County Jail. Mm. Can you uh, can you can you, can you <laughs> fill us in on, on well, all for that to please be there? Do tell. Yeah, fortunately, it's a goal I've never achieved. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I will tell you what's behind that. I for since uh, two thousand and two. Um, for the last 15 years, I was uh, one of the chaplains going into the Marin County Jail. Um, I was going into what was called special housing, uh, which was for the most violent criminals. Um, people awaiting sentencing for, for pretty serious crimes. And I would go in there relative to going in there from a pastoral role. Um, I would have my Bible with me and from, from a Christian perspective. But... When a lot of people hear that, the first thing they think is, so you went in and preached messages. I got to tell you, one of the most rewarding things that came out of that was listening, was was listening to people. And uh, again, very personally, many times I would come out of there so thankful for mum and dad um, and so thankful getting back to my environment. Um, you would see people with incredible talent an incredible ability, but they they didn't have the the right people coming alongside them saying, "Hey, don't go that way. Head this way," and and just giving them that encouragement. Um, so that that is one of the aspects I I loved. Um, and now that I've moved to South Carolina, uh, you know, in several months' time, we'll look to get back involved in doing that. 
And, and when it, you encourage, I assume, advisors to to create dream boards as well. And it it sounds like something that should be easy to do. One of the things I've noticed, and I'd love your perspective, is that that there's a group of people who find it very difficult to to dream in that way mm. and to to think beyond perhaps what their history has told them they should want. Mm. Yeah, so so I would say, and I'm learning this more and more, that not everybody does this the same way. Um, for me, I'm, I'm visual. I, I love a picture. I, I love it in 3D. Um, and, and so then my challenge, or not so much challenge, but for lack of a better word, challenge becomes, okay, that's what I want. I, I believe I have the talent to get that. Um, it's a God-given ability that, that I, I'm going to go after that and employ it to get that, and, and away I go. Some people don't um, think like that. Um, however, I think it is important to be able to crystallize exactly what those marker points look like. I, I want to say end goal, but then somebody usually pushes back and says, well, but that's, you know, I could achieve that by the time I'm 60, but I want to go further than that. I would say those marker points in life, here's what I want that, here's what I'd love that to look like. Um, now, how desperately do I want it? Um, because once you have that picture in mind, then you're going to be able to spot distractions that that much faster. Because at that point, if I say, "Hey, I want to lose uh, I want to lose ten pounds by December twenty fifth," and I'm serious about it, now all of a sudden I'm, I'm going to have a, a picture of what distractions look like. Um, that that donut is a, is a distraction, and it's going to cost me another hour on a on an elliptical trainer for nothing. Um, and, and so you start to really hone in and become realistic about, okay, is that possible to do? And so coming back to advisors, when I hear advisors say, I want to go from 50 million to 100 million, uh, and my first response is over what period of time? And they might say four years. And at that stage, it's like, okay, that's 12 and a half million a year that we want to add in new assets. And we start breaking it down. Um, and, and making it very tangible and relatable on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is where people struggle. It's relating that longer-term objective. I want to lose 10 pounds, sure, but so what's this donut? It's only Monday morning. Right. Um, it's, it's making it relatable. Well, and, and so, <clears throat> so how, how does niche um, roll into this? How does, how does having a target market roll into this? So if someone says, I, I, I'm at 50 million and I want to go to 100 million, mm. um, I, my understanding is that, that – uh, you know, you, I mean, in your book, you talk a lot about having a niche and, and, and uh, doing it in a particular way. How, how does that relate to that vision? So we had a very uh, clear process, uh, and we like to call it a AAA process, and it was the assets, attitude, and advocacy. Um, and, and we had a number of professionals you know, around our business geographically-wise, uh, but more important than assets was the attitude. Um, we had some $2 million, $3 million people, um, one of which we, we fired, um, but, but we had some people who we knew um, were not going to be a good fit for us attitude-wise. Um, likewise with assets, yes, we really we preferred people you know, over north of a, of a half a million dollars at that point. This is back in, way back in uh, 2012, 2013. But 
if somebody came in with 400,000 or 300,000, but whose attitude was solely, hey, absolutely, we're fine with two portfolio reviews a year. Absolutely, we're fine with doing online reviews. And they were going to adhere to our system. Uh, we would then bring them on. So relative to a niche, we, we like to think of our niche as the ideal clients that were going to be totally adhering to what we said. Um, and then they in turn made great advocates because we were very clear upon how we were going to help them and then doubly clear on delivering what we did for them. And, and so when you talk about having the right clients, because you talk about that being critical to being distraction proof, mm. then, then it sounds like the way you're defining clients, the right clients, is clients who will buy into your process and, and adhere to your process. Is, is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah. And, <laughs> That's absolutely right. So it sounds like having a process you can communicate to those folks would be critical too, so that you can be sure that they're actually buying into it. <laughs> that's a great point. And, and that's often where, and I think every advisor has this type of story where they have a regret. They knew at that first meeting they should not have brought that person on. <laughs> um, but yes, we, we had a, a, a very clear way of defining how we, how we worked, how we helped people. Um, we were big advocates for financial planning. So even when people came with the initial questions of, do you people handle investments? How do you do that? We would very quickly, and we had set language. And it didn't come out like it was learned. It was, yes, we, we handle the investment management part of people's portfolios and financial um, life. But more importantly, we want to know that we're not wasting our time. The last thing we want to do is pour over financial statements and allocate accordingly where we don't know everything about you. So now we prioritize the financial planning aspect of a person's life so that we know no matter what decisions get made, it's within a sensible, thoughtful process to have you reaching your longer term objectives. And so we did a lot of financial planning for that. So do you find if if someone has defined their – so I think Steve's point is a good one. You know, just having the process is obviously a starting point. So let's assume for a moment that's in place. Mm. And we know that it's still tempting when someone comes in and they probably don't fit in that process. Is, is that part of what you're defining as distraction as well, that tendency to either – uh, you know, work with anyone or perhaps just not have enough conviction about the process that you've got that you're comfortable saying, absolutely not, I'm not going to move off this. Yes, and that and exactly how you framed it. It's not having that conviction at the same time as thinking there are limited numbers of people out there. They've got a pulse. They've got seven zeros at the bank at the end of that bank account. I need them instead of recognizing, no, there are more out there. If I've said, for instance, if we've said um, our ideal client is 500,000 and we're looking for 20, client, 20 of those clients um, within two years, then I'm looking for 10 of those clients a year. I'm looking for one, for, for one a month. And so then it becomes a fun, almost like a fun game. How quickly can I meet those people? So when I see somebody else coming along with that kind of money, but not wanting it to do it my way or our way, it becomes a lot easier 
to say it's, this is just not going to be a good fit. And 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 this is one of the things that that rubs me a little bit. And and I'll just share um, a little gripe about our industry. Many advisors call themselves professionals, and yet if you went to a dentist and said to a dentist, you know what? I'm going to come in, but I don't want my teeth cleaned by her. I want it done by him. And I want this chair not in this room, but in that room. And by the way, I'll be in at 12. Good luck. There's no way you're going to get back into that dental practice. (laughs) (laughs) And and yet advisors in our industry, and, and, and here's another thing you have to keep in mind. That dentist has probably gone through another seven years at least of, it's like a surgeon of intense training. If anyone has reason to think, I'll just wing it for this client, it's a dentist or a surgeon. And yet the, or a pilot, yet these are some of the professionals who adhere to a strict list every single time. And on the flip side, advisors who are dealing with people's financial life, who may never have the chance to make up for a mistake, can become flippant and get a little lax on just kind of winging it or doing what they want to do every day differently. And you're, you're right. It's, it, you want to take pride in having a system and having a structure and and following that. And so, Paul, let me drill into something that you've been talking about. You, you talk a lot about getting the right clients in, and, and, and it sounds to me, and, and this may be an oversimplification, that um, you're looking for people who have a certain amount of net investable assets and will buy into your system for doing it. But at least in our culture, you know, people tend not to talk about how much money they have in the bank. And so, what I find is that defining your your ideal client based on how many how much assets they have makes it a lot harder for people to refer because that's not what they talk to their friends about even when they're at the country club is is that is, i mean is that do, do you ever find that as a hang up with referrals or or are there other ways that you help advisors define their target market or how do, how do you get around that yeah yeah so no it's a great point because that was sometimes the case for some of the referrals we received so we had our book um, we, we stratified our book, so we had A to D clients, and we had deliverables on on each of those on each of those groups. Um, now we weren't, you know, obviously when that when that prospect became a client, we'd learn, we'd start learning then um, exactly what they what they did have. Um, but more than not, even for our smaller clients. Um, who really weren't aware of the type as you know some of our top end the top end of our book and how 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 large some of the balances were they would refer um, their friends understandably their their social group Um, while we weren't hugely encouraging of them to do that again if the friend was prepared to work and adhere to our process um, we would we would more than not bring them on the biggest difficulty is when you get somebody who's a great client, refer somebody who, after you talk with them, you know this person is solely transactional. They're just going to be watching the market every hour. This is not going to be a good fit. Um, then we were going to be very helpful and suggest, hey, maybe you want to call Betterment or maybe you want to take an online account at, at one of the other places. Well, let me, let me let me refine that a little bit then. So um, you bring in somebody and he's got a million dollars, and that's exactly mm-hmm. the kind of person that you want to that you want to refer. And and since we don't talk you know with each other about how much we have, um, he re- <clears throat> that client refers somebody else, 
He's got a great personality. You really like him. He totally trusts you. He totally buys into your process and he's got $50,000 to manage. Right. What do you right. do? So at that point, we would probably, depending on the relationship with the with the A client, if he was going to adhere, if they were going to adhere to exactly how we were running things, we would bring them on. Um, and we would bring them on with an understanding that down the track, if we were going to grow that much um, and, and bring another a junior advisor on, they were going to be some of the first clients uh, that were moved to that to that advisor. Um, having said that, the moment they crossed the line, the, the moment they had said, hey, we're going to adhere to, you know, to, to what you do and didn't, we, we would fire them. Now, here's the flip side and here's the challenge we're faced with today. Sometimes we refuse to bring them on because we told them we've instituted a minimum fee. So our minimum fee at that stage was, I think, around $5,000 annually. Now, for a $50,000 account, that's sure. a huge right. chunk. And, right. and we, would, we would tell them from a fiduciary perspective, um, we, just, we just can't do this. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's how you weeded them out. Does, did, um, what, what, what is that? If, if, so if you did bring on that person, um, mm. just as an aside, what, doesn't that just encourage the A client to refer more people just exactly like that? So we also tell the A client that. Um, so when the person, and it's a very sensitive um, subject, but we would let the A client know we're, we're happy to help out. Um, you know, we're happy to help out Donna in this in this particular instance um, because it looks like she's you know she's she's going to do everything we've we've asked of. But typically, we're you know we're more working with because of the complexities that we have the depth to, to deal with. We're more working with clients like yourself, and you've got to be very careful because you can't say and not her because it's only fifty grand because that's confidential. Well, yeah. exactly. That's 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 what I'm that's what yeah. I'm trying to get at is how do you how do you work with how yeah, do you so that's that? when we if it was somebody that wasn't going to be quite a good fit, we would uh, mention the minimum fee, and from a fiduciary perspective, okay. it just it's just not going to be a, a, an appropriate fit for her. And well, I also think that if you if you manage expectations up front, okay. right, and let clients know that you're happy to yeah. meet with anyone yeah. they refer, but that you may not be the right advisor for all of them, and you'll help them find a solution that works, they may not care, you know, at that point. So you've made yeah. that commitment. You're right, Steve, to meeting with them. Yeah. But you're sure, you know, probably they don't care if you work with them. They just want them to get an answer. Yeah, and that's where the the referral language of of saying. If you have friends or family who have questions or concerns about retirement, about Social Security, um, whatever the third one may be, I'll be happy to answer any questions for five or ten minutes on a phone call. Uh, I don't promise. I don't promise I'll bring them on as a client because it's got to be a great fit. Um, but I'm more than happy if they've got some questions or concerns. Five or ten minutes on a phone call, more than happy to do that. Because as I've said before on, on, on stage, if it's if it's Uncle Larry wanting to flip GoPro stock, I'm not your guy. Um, yeah. But but I'm happy to spend you know five to that that way at least you've put yourself out there as trying to accommodate. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um. So one one of the um well there 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 are a few other things um you know that you say in the book about avoiding distractions and things, but I'm looking at the clock and I don't want to go too far over our too far over our right. time. Um, I, so I, so we probably should just end it at that. And, and 
I, I would suggest everybody get your book and 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 take a look through it. There there are some really good things in there about knowing what the crucial things are to get done and and the, you know not underestimating the effect of the small things and you know a lot of stuff. I'd I'd, uh, I'd love to continue talking with you about. But if people want to find out more about what you can do for them, um, what what would you rec- recommend they do? Uh, so if they want to go to my website, it's just paulkingsman.com. Um, or they can email me at uh, paul at paulkingsman.com and, and get in touch with me that way as well. Uh, I'm working currently on a, on a project um, called the High Performance Advisor, and that's down the track. Um, so I don't want to say you know too much more about that because I've still got to figure some things out. But yeah, if they just shoot, shoot me an email, and I'm um, more than happy to, to help where I can and reference it, they've heard it. Um, with you, Stephen, and you, Julie, and and if I could reference that, that'd be great. Um, great. Yeah, and I'd love to help where I can. Well, that's great. Yeah, Paul. So thank you so much for spending some time with us, and congratulations <laughs> on your move to South Carolina, and good luck on thank your you. upcoming program. I can't wait to hear about it when it's released. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Look forward to talking to you both soon. Hi, it's Julie again. It was great to have you with us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. Thanks so much for joining us.